Well, hello, good afternoon. Uh, thank you for uh, watching this today. Uh, today we had our drive-in service at uh, the Transit Drive-In, and we're going to be having that uh, again next week. Uh, so hopefully you can join us for that. Um, but I wanted to uh, post this anyways for those who are not able to come. And uh, if you have a Bible, if you turn to 2 Kings chapter 6, we'll be starting in verse 8. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8 says this. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Behold, or beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. And thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elijah, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he's in Dolphin. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. When the Syrians came down against him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elijah. Elijah said to them, This is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elijah said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. The Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. So one hobby I enjoy is bird watching, and there's this one bird that has eluded me for months and months. Uh, it's the Eastern Screech Owl. And the thing about Eastern Screech Owls is that they're relatively common throughout the United States. However, they hunt at night, sleep during the day, and when they're sleeping, they often sleep in the holes of trees that maybe woodpeckers or other animals have made and they blend right in with the tree trunk because they're usually gray or brown and you could just look right at them and not see that the bird is sleeping there. And of course it's difficult to find birds at night under the cover of darkness. And apart from that, they're also very small. Uh, they're only about 10 inches uh, long. And so I have been unable to find one for months. Uh, many months ago, I heard that there were some seen at Buckhorn State Park on Grand Island. And 
so a number of people had sighted them, and so I went to Buckhorn State Park. I don't, I'd never been there before, but I went there looking for this owl. And as I'm walking through the paths of this park, I realized that the point where this bird was sighted, there was this map, and you could see a, a little pinpoint where the bird was sighted. And so I looked, and it was off the trail. And so I thought, okay, this, this person must have gone into the deep heart of the woods and seen this owl there. And so I decided I was going to go and try to find it. And so I go through this dense, dense brush, you know, kind of scrape myself all up, um, almost fall over, uh, my feet get all wet. I get to this place where it's just this marshy wetness, and this is the, in the middle of winter time, and I never found the owl. Then I realized later that that little pinpoint, it wasn't actually the spot where the owl was sighted. It was just the middle of the park. And so anyone who saw a bird anywhere in the whole park might put it on that pinpoint. It was just the, the middle of the park. So I'd gone through that brush for nothing. After that, I came back a number of times and I looked through the trees and tried to find the holes in the trees to find this owl. Each time I was unsuccessful. I saw people who had posted pictures of these owls uh, on this website. And so I looked at the picture and I, I tried to find out where that particular tree was so that I could find the owl each time unsuccessful. I went to Florida on vacation and I went to an island called Sanibel Island. And I had looked beforehand and saw that there were a number of these owls that had been sighted on Sanibel Island. And there was one spot there where there was this hole in a palm tree and I had trouble finding that palm tree that had the hole in it. Finally I found the palm tree uh, with the hole in it and there was no bird on it. I went to the visitor center, there was a nature center then a visitor center and I asked them where I might see an eastern screech owl and they told me to go to uh, the city hall and that there was a nest box there. So I went to the city hall to find this bird at the, the next nest box and I went there and it was nowhere to be found. There was no nest box. Somebody told me that there was one at the school on Sanibel Island. And so I go to the school and finally I found the nest box, but it was behind a, a gate and it, it, it was close to the school. So you couldn't get to the next nest box. I don't even know if there was a bird there. On the way back from Florida, on the way to the airport, I saw uh, online that there was this there's nest boxes and these uh, screech owls that were sighted in this other park. And so I stopped at that park, found the nest box, but no owl. And so finally I got to a point where I was almost ready to give up. And I kind of did give up. I, I mean, if I was out in the woods, I would keep my eye out for one. But I didn't have a lot of hope of seeing one. And I thought it was so strange because... They're relatively common. They can live in many different environments. They're not a difficult bird to find. And yet all this time I couldn't find one. Well, this past week, I was running near my house. And as I was running, I looked up and I saw a bird on the telephone line. And it looked kind of like a morning dove, but a little bit different. And I thought, that can't be. And then I saw it fly to a tree, and then I had a flashlight, and I went and looked at it, and sure enough, it was an eastern screech owl. 
And there wasn't just one, there were three. And, and I thought back on all the time that I had spent at Buckhorn State Park, how I'd gone through that brush and, and I, how I had gotten my feet wet and how I had gone and looked through every tree to find a, try to find one of these screech owls. I thought about how I went to Sanibel Island in Florida and looked in that palm tree and at the school and at the city hall and at that other park and so many different places that I had looked for this owl and all the while it was less than a mile from my house. Perhaps the whole time they were there around my house, but I just couldn't see them. I couldn't find them. In the same way, ladies and gentlemen, there is a spiritual reality that is going on around us that we cannot see. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a cosmic battle that's going on between God and Satan, and we can only see a small portion of what's going on. We can experience that reality. We can know that it exists, but we don't see that reality. The spiritual reality is unseen. And the passage that we're looking at today tells us a lot about that unseen reality. The first thing that it tells us about that unseen reality is that the work of the enemy is often more visible than the work of God. In this passage, the king of Syria is warring against Israel and he would tell his plans to his servants and then somehow Israel kept knowing what he was going to do, knowing his war plans. And so he was very distressed by this. He came to his servants and says, Find out who among us is the spy, who is giving Israel the information. And they come, his servants come to the realization it's there's no spy, it's that God has revealed to Elijah the plans of the king of Syria. And he says, Elijah can hear what's going on in your bedroom. And so the king of Syria comes up with a solution. The only solution is to come and wipe Elijah out to destroy him. And so he goes to Dothan where Elijah was and he surrounds the city with a great army. It says in the text with horses, with chariots. And they do this at night and then Elijah and his servant come out in the morning and there's an enemy army around them and the servant reacts in a way that is perfectly understandable and would be the normal human response. He is terrified. He's terrified because there's an army all around him. And he says, alas, master, what shall we do? The army's around them. There's no way out. And at this point, Elijah says, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You would think at this point, the servant would think to himself, uh, Elijah, have you forgotten how to count? There are two of us. There are innumerable horses and chariots and armies around us. How can there be more with us than there are with them? The work of the enemy is often more visible than the work of God. The enemy is clear to see. 
Sometimes the work of God is not so clear to see. In our day and age, the work of the enemy is very clear. In our day and age, it's clear in the senseless killing of young African-American men such as George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. It's visible in the rioting and violence that's been cited and division that's been cited in, in response to that. It's visible in the thousands of Americans who have died of coronavirus. It's visible in the families who are struggling, the marriages who are on the brink from having to be together during such a time. It's visible in the domestic violence and abuse that's occurring in many homes as people are staying at home. It's visible in the mental illness, the depression, the anxiety, the fear that's being caused in our culture from staying at home and from everything that's going on in our culture around us. It's visible in the small business owners, the workers who have been laid off, who have nowhere to turn to. People whose livelihoods have been destroyed. It's visible in the division that's been caused in our country that seems to grow worse every day. It's visible in the division that's existing even in the church as different members of the church see this crisis differently and become divided over the response to the coronavirus. Yes, the work of the enemy is very easy to see. You cannot mistake his work, but the work of the enemy is very small compared with the work of God. What we see with our eyes is a very small portion of what is happening in the world. Theologian Harry Blamiers once said this, to become a Christian is to accept an extra dimension to life. From the Christian's point of view, the notable thing about the unbeliever's world is how much smaller it is. The believer is imprisoned in a decaying universe. Imagine you took a child to the theater to see some tragedy like, say, Hamlet, and at the end of which the stage is littered with corpses. And suppose you had difficulty comforting the child afterwards. So, distra so distressed was he at the spectacle of the deaths. The, but the man who claimed Hamlet is not really dead, you explain. He's an actor. He also lives a life outside the theater. He has a wife and a family, and far from being dead, he's probably now at home with them, enjoying a late supper. Lemire says, if there's one word the Christian secretly wants to use to describe the unbeliever's outlook, it is literal, literal, like the child who takes the play for reality. Now you might say to yourself, well, that takes a lot of faith to believe that there is a reality that we cannot see. But I would argue it takes more faith not to believe in such a reality. Because we see an invisible reality even in our physical world. You, know, you see the wind moving, the tree shaking the branches, making the leaves rustle even though we don't see the wind. You can never see wind. You can only see its effects. Scientists theorize that about 95 to 96% of the universe is invisible. 
95 to 96% of the universe is invisible. We only see 4 to 5% of what is visible in the universe. In fact, scientists have looked at the planetary movements of the universe, and they've looked at the way that the, the planetary bodies move, and they have discovered that they don't really know why certain planets do certain things. There's so much that's unknown. And so they have theorized that there is this substance called dark matter that is invisible, that's in some ways I think immaterial, that somehow exerts certain effects on certain planetary bodies and objects. Now, that's science. That's not faith. It's science that believes that 95 to 96% of the world is invisible. The same is true in the spiritual realm. God is working, even though we don't see it always. There's so much that goes on beneath the surface. So the work of the enemy is often more visible than the work of God. We see the second thing that this passage shows us is that the work of the enemy usually comes unexpectedly. Verse 14 says that the enemy came by night and surrounded the city. They came by night because at nighttime, Elijah and his servant presumably would have been sleeping. At nighttime, they could go undetected. At nighttime, there would be less of a chance of someone seeing the, the armies moving and telling Elijah. At nighttime, there'd be less chance for Elijah and his servant to escape. Now, not to press the image too much, but in 1 Peter 5, 8, uh, Peter says that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, when do lions hunt? They usually hunt at nighttime. They hunt at nighttime when they feel like they have a competitive advantage against the prey, when the prey can't necessarily see them coming, when they can creep up on their prey. The enemy often attacks unexpectedly. He doesn't attack us when we're prepared. He attacks us when we're weak, when we're lonely, when we're broken. He attacks us when things are going great. He attacks us when we... Never expect him to attack. Several weeks ago, and some of you have heard this story, several year, weeks ago, we had an online prayer service. And for that online prayer service, it was a very simple setup, and we've done a number of uh, online events before with full bands and uh, a lot of complexity before. But this was gonna be super simple. Three mics, one guitar, that's it. And, and it was almost like I didn't even know that we needed a sound person to help us with it. You know, we had somebody come to help with sound in the video. And uh, I had everybody come about two hours early. And we got there and set everything up, did mic checks, and everything seemed to be going smoothly. Everything was working property, properly. And I thought in my mind, I'm like, huh, maybe I shouldn't have had them come this early, what, what are we gonna do for the next hour while we're waiting to, to get ready? And then about 40 minutes before we were about to start, everything just went haywire. And, and to, this, 
to this day, I can't explain exactly what happened, but everything started clipping out. All uh, the, the guitar and, and all the sound with, my, with uh, Patrick and, and Pastor Phil, it just went haywire. We started switching out mics. We started changing anything we could think to change. You know, and it got to a point where even like weird things happened. Like we heard our voices through uh, through the sound system, even though there were no mics on. And it was just confusing what was going on, and I believe that it was spiritual warfare. Now, I had never expected that to happen. It seemed like it was going to be simple, straightforward, no problem at all. That's when Satan attacked. He didn't want us to be praying. Satan does that. He expect, he, he attacks unexpectedly. And from the beginning of my time being a pastor, I've experienced the attacks of the evil one. And sometimes it's just really bizarre and it's always unexpected. I've never felt like I was fully prepared for it. You know, early on, I remember Stephanie and I started to realize that on Saturdays, bad things would usually happen. Uh, I'd hear some bad news. We'd get in an argument about something stupid. And we didn't, I didn't put it together that it was Saturday, the day before I was about to preach God's word. Satan often attacks in ways that are unexpected. He never attacks us when our defenses are up. He attacks us when we're weak, when we're not expecting it. That's why Peter tells us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You see, eventually the work of the enemy becomes clear. When the night breaks, then Elijah and his servants see the enemy. But before the night breaks, they can't see the enemy. The enemy is moving in the dark. Initially, Often Satan moves without us noticing. He moves in the dark. And only after we detect him, uh, then does he, or if that doesn't work, then does he make himself visible. C.S. Lewis once said this, if devils exist, which by the way, he did believe they exist. He said their first aim is to give you an anesthetic, to put you off your guard. Only if that fails, do you become aware of them. So maybe you start turning to a substance to help you cope with your problems. Maybe you turn to drugs and alcohol and you think of it as simply a bad habit or a physical problem, but then you realize that Satan has been using it to draw a wedge between you and God or between you and your family. Or maybe you turn to pornography and you think to yourself, well, it's not hurting anybody else and yet Maybe a little bit down the road, you realize that Satan has been using that to destroy your marriage. Maybe you're holding on to anger and bitterness because of something that was done to you in the past. And maybe it's completely justified. And you think to yourself, that person did something really wrong to me. Uh, I am justified in my feeling. And maybe you are justified in that what they did was wrong to you. But then it, maybe it takes years for you to realize that Satan is using that to destroy your joy. 
He's using that to keep you ineffective. Now, are you going to see Satan coming to you with a pitchfork? No. But he's using that event in your life to lead you away from God and to break up your fellowship with those around you. Maybe you give in to an anxiety, worry, or fear, and that becomes your pattern of life. Maybe you think of it as simply being conscientious, being responsible. Simply a bad habit, but maybe the enemy uses that to keep you focused only on yourself. Maybe he uses that to keep you ineffective so that you're not able to love those around you. Now, I'm not saying any of those things are easy things to conquer. But what I am saying is that Satan often uses those things to divide us, to separate us from our inner relationship from God, separate us from one another. And oftentimes we don't even know that he's doing it. We don't even know that he's doing it until we get days or months or years even down the road. We need to expect that the enemy is going to attack. We need to expect and be prepared for the onslaught of the enemy. Oftentimes Christians have this mistaken notion that if you're doing the right things, then you're not going to experience trials. If you're doing the right things, then you're not going to experience a spiritual attack. But the opposite is the truth. The opposite is true. The more you're serving God, the more Satan is going to attack you. The more Satan is going to try to get you to fail. Because if you're just doing life your own way, if you're not doing anything for the kingdom of God, he's got you right where he wants you. He already has you. But if you're loving the people around you, if you're loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he will do anything to destroy you. In John 16, Jesus gives us a promise, a promise that none of us really might want to hear. But he says, in this world, you will have tribulation. He doesn't say you might have tribulation. He doesn't say some people have tribulation. He tells us you will have tribulation. And we need to expect that. We need to be prepared for the attack of the enemy to be on guard so that we can turn and trust in Christ and defeat the enemy in the midst of the attack. So we see that the work of the enemy usually happens unexpectedly. Finally, we see that the enemies that we face are no match for our God. In verse 16, once again, Elijah tells his servant, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elijah prays that God would open the eyes of his servants. So the, and it says in the text in verse 17, so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elijah. Did you know that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are given nearly the exact same promise that Elijah gave to the sermon. We're told the exact same thing. Verse John 4, 4 to 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 4 says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
John 16, 33, I only read the first part a second ago. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have the profound assurance that the enemy will not win. And we have the assurance that there is a reality that we do not see. Think for a moment, what if we could see that reality? Now, angels are beings that uh, we know some things about. We're not going to go into all that we know about angels from Scripture. We know some things about them, but many things are shrouded in mystery. But imagine you could see the spiritual realm, and this is just speculation, but maybe you could see an angel guarding the doorstep of your house. Maybe you could see an angel sitting in your car next to you. Maybe you could see an angel by your young child who is sleeping peacefully. I don't know about that. I don't know what we might see in terms of the angelic realm. But I do know if we could see the spiritual realm, we could see the fact that God is living inside of us. We could see God's presence in those who are believers because God has promised us that he'll always be with us, that he'll never leave us or forsake us. The thing is, we can't see the spiritual realm. There are some things that in this world are unseen, and in a sense, we're blind. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. See, one day we'll see God face to face. One day we'll see the spiritual reality and we'll see the work of God and all that he's been doing throughout all of history. But today, we're in the dark. Today, in a sense, we're blind. We know that there's a reality that we don't see, but we don't see it. We're blind. That's where faith comes in. Faith is believing in a reality that our eyes cannot see. Faith is believing in a reality that our eyes cannot see. Even though there's a sense in which we're blind, even though there's a sense in which we don't see the full scope of what God is doing, we have to We don't have to live in our blindness. We don't have to let blindness overcome us. There's a lady by the name of Fanny Crosby. She lived to over 90 years old. She wrote numerous hymns. She's almost considered a saint of the church. And Fanny Crosby was blind. She became blind as an infant uh, due to an unfortunate accident. And she became blind But even as a young child, she chose to accept her blindness and to accept that as a part of her reality. When she was eight years old, she wrote, Oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot see. I'm resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a choice. Do we mourn the fact that there are things that we cannot understand? Do we mourn the fact that we are blind? Do we mourn the fact that the enemy, the work of the enemy is visible? Or do we rejoice in what God is doing behind the scenes? 
Do we rejoice in the fact that there is a reality that we cannot see? Things that are happening in this world are troubling, confusing, disconcerting, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel a little bit blind. Can't see the whole picture. We can look to another reality, the things that are unseen, rather than the things that are seen. What's interesting is that even though Fanny Crosby was blind for most of her life, and she really probably didn't have a a huge frame of reference for what seeing was, what, what it meant to see, many of her hymns reference sight. In her hymn, Blessed Assurance, she talks of visions of rapture now burst on my sight. She talks about watching and waiting, looking above. In her hymn, In the Cross, she wrote, Near the cross I'll watch and wait, hoping, trusting forever. In her hymn, To God Be the Glory, she wrote, But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see. She believed in a reality that her eyes could not see. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what it means to be a person of faith. Faith is believing in a reality that our eyes cannot see. I'd like to close by reading 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. Paul says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed by, day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Ladies and gentlemen, let's look today to the things that are unseen. Let's rejoice in the fact that God is working, even though we don't see it. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have a plan even though we don't always see it. We thank you that the enemy cannot overtake us because of your great power. We thank you that you've chosen to pour out your love on us in the cross. We thank you that you've promised that you'd never leave us, you'll never forsake us. Lord, help us to be on guard against the attacks of the enemy. Help us to believe in faith that there is a reality that we don't see, that you will win the victory. And help us to hold on to the truth that you are coming against him to make all wrongs right. To wipe away every tear from our eye. In Christ's name I pray.